we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. My name is Kean, and I'm here at the Cabin in the Woods somewhere in County Cork in the south of Ireland. Every episode I investigate stories of the strange, attempting to remain critical but never cynical. This episode, myself and my brother Donald Gill talking about none other than Herbert George Wells. That's H.G. Wells to you and me. Famous, probable father, one of a few fathers, or important ones anyway, of the nascent genre of what we now call science fiction and a man, a great man of letters and a huge, huge celebrity in his own time, famous for his various ideas on futurology and for traveling around the world and meeting pretty much everybody else famous from the early 20th century. So this episode came about kind of by accident. I was talking to Donald about some ideas for shows and I pretty much just said, look, dude, uh, I'd love to get an episode out there but I don't have a whole lot of time for research. Do you have any great ideas that you could just pop out of the box and do straight away? And because of the kind of guy he is, um, he always has a tremendous amount of interesting reading going on. He's all he's always working on um, uh, and studying fantastic things. So he said, what about H.G. Wells? I can talk about his, uh, his political ideas and you can talk about his science fiction. And I'm a huge huge uh, nerd for H.G. Wells' early science fiction work. So that's how we took the two parts of his life, the two things that he's famous for. I would say nowadays he is far better known for his science fictional ideas, but, um, you know, that wasn't what he thought he was going to be remembered for for most of his life. And as I think you will hear in the episode, um, he wasn't, he was better known for other things for a good deal of his career. The beer for this episode is Bohemian Pilsner Lager uh, from 8 Degrees Brewing, uh, which is in Mitchellstown, County Cork. I've featured them several times on the show. It is a delightfully warm summer evening here at the cabin. Uh, I've been out working in the forest and the fields all day. I have a classic Irish farmer's tan, which is probably going to start driving me crazy uh, within the next hour I'm, I'm still i'm still feeling that nice glow you get from you know good physical work where you feel like you've done something and you kind of you're a bit achy but it's in a good way um so i'm still feeling good but i mean as soon as i start sitting down and um i, st- I stop feeling that i'm sure i will start to feel the burn so i better have some bohemian pilsner just to uh, take the edge off now, as always, you can reach out and chat to us over on Twitter. We are at Strange Ireland on Instagram. We are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast, and you can help the show by sending some coffee. It's a lovely once-off, no strings attached way to show your love for the cabin and for the show. That is, of course, over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Wide Atlantic, and there's no weird. Few things to mention as usual before we get to our main interview. Uh, we had some cool follow-up online to our Bernard Huvelman's episode with the fantastic Cameron McCormick. Uh, there was a lot of great chat. You know, I, I, I won't, I won't say all of it uh, prompted by the episode, but um, certainly some of it I think came because of the episode. Some very, very knowledgeable people 
uh, chipped in and some folks who really know a tremendous amount of, of stuff and some people who I've really learned a lot from um, over the last few years about cryptozoology and the history of strange ideas. And many of them had um, thought on the concept of calling Bernard Heuvelmans the father of cryptozoology. That was the name of the episode and that was one of the themes that uh, myself and Cameron took in the episode. He was, of course, very, very far from the first person to, you know, write about the ideas of mystery animals. However, it was the name that got attached to him during his lifetime and during his writing, so I thought it was a uh, a fairly useful way to title the episode. Of course, as I said, there were a lot of people who had written about similar things before him, and in some of the online chat, primarily on Twitter, some really smart people chipped in with some great ideas. So I'll just mention a couple of them. Um, so the... what did we get? So Folk Horror Revival over um, over on Twitter, which is the name of a, a handle um, and, a, and, a, and a website or a blog, which is worth checking out if you're into folk horror, um, sent on a very interesting video, which I'd never seen before, which is Ivan T. Sanderson, of course, who was Hevelman's mentor of, of sorts in, in cryptozoology, talking to John Napier. John Napier is not as well known, but he was certainly an important person in the field of sort of Bigfoot studies in the early days um, and, and the Abominable Snowman before that. He was... And quite a qualified um, scientist who kind of weighed in on these things in the early days before it got too strange and too woolly. So this was a fascinating video. So big thanks to Folk Horror Revival. I hadn't seen that one before. Uh, Oliver Smith, who's who's done some great writing on the Yeren, uh, which is the of course the myth of the Chinese wild man, sort of like a you know nowadays when you hear about it, it it's presented as a Chinese analog of of Bigfoot. Um, Oliver Smith has written a really interesting article collecting pretty much all sightings and reports known of the Yeren and coming to some interesting conclusions. So that might be something we talk about on the show at some point in the future. But he mentioned another early, he mentioned actually several books from his own collection of interesting early, like arguably cryptozoological literature predating Bernard Hubelman's. The one that I thought sounded interesting that I might check out is called Theozoology by Lanz von Liebenfels. Uh, and one of the interesting things about it is that it mixes up sort of uh, romantic zoology with some sort of like pre-Ariosophy or some, as far as I can tell, some sort of some sort of pre-Nazi sort of proto-German supremacist ideas. And I've definitely come across his ideas while studying the sort of occult origins behind some elements of the Third Reich as well. He pops up in some of those conversations about uh, the German folk societies of the late 19th century and uh, kind of around the First World War. So if you're interested in, like, Thule society and stuff like that, he's one of the names that does pop up in, in, in that kind of company. Darren Nash, of course, chipped in and just reminded us that uh, he has, in fact, done some writing with, with Cameron McCormick in the past, and that was on my list to talk about for the episode. Somehow I, I didn't mention it. We got swept away talking about... Uh, our our mania. There was there was just so much uh, great crazy stuff to cover there. So uh, anyone who's interested in that and, and has not seen this before, um, Cameron and Darren, of course, contributed on numerous writings back in the day. Do check out something called the Cadborosaurus Wars uh, over on Scient Scientific American. It it was a back in the the high days of blogging. 
it was a sort of a series of articles and comments and blog wars all about the the cryptid known as Cadborosaurus, who is a kind of a horse-headed sea serpent native to British Columbia. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff there, and you will learn a lot about just straight zoology as well as um, cryptozoology by taking a look at that stuff. It's from quite a few years ago now. I think it's getting on 10 years old, perhaps. Okay, that's uh, most of my preamble. Uh, I better introduce my guest for this episode, who is, of course, my brother, Donald. He has not been on the show for a while, but if you dig into our archives, he has been on frequently before talking about all manner of things. I'm going to read a little bit from his professional bio here. So uh, he's now Dr. Donald Gill, has a PhD in political science from Concordia University, writing a dissertation on the politics of travel in Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels. And we do have an episode on that in our back catalogue. Originally from Cork City in Ireland, he completed his BA, joint honours in history and politics, and MA in politics at University College Cork. For the latter, he was awarded the Dermot Whelan Memorial Prize for Best Dissertation and Best Overall Mark in the MA in Politics programme. Donald teaches political science at Dawson College and humanities at Vanier College, both in Montreal, Canada. And if I may add, he knows an awful lot about Hulk Hogan as well. Okay, so in his time, Wells was one of the most kind of famous and influential, we could almost say like um, public intellectuals. And he was writing in a deliberately utopian mode for much of the early 1900s. he was professing the idea that utopian writing was the, you know, a kind of a, a, a necessary generational effort toward directing society towards a better and more progressive place. But by the time he was, you know, really, really pushing this as, again, identifying himself as the prognosticator of this, maybe some of the bloom was off the rose within some of his contemporaries, the likes of uh, Joseph Conrad, for example, saying, he said to, uh, to Wells, the difference between us is fundamental. You don't care for humanity, but think they are to be improved. I love humanity, but no, they are not. And also the UK Prime Minister, Clement Attlee, who again, would have been reading Wells and would have felt as though the social prognostications of Wells had to be within the political kind of um, mindset at the time. He said that Wells was the archetypal scientific reformer whose, quote, besetting sin is his failure to make allowance for the idiosyncrasies of the individual. Tremendous. So that's an opening. And uh, Wells was a huge hero of mine as a kid, uh, largely for his his early early science fiction writing. So he's on top of everything else that he did in his whole life. um, He, you know, kind of virtually created or kind of typified a number of important subgenres of science fiction, like astonishingly early in his career and astonishingly quickly within just a few years, he kind of created a number of these very important um, ideas within science fiction that are still being used today. Of course, there were precursors to all of them, but he really he really had a way with this stuff and he really created a lot of stuff that remains um, important. And, and I guess that's my knowledge of him. So I, since I was a, since I was very young, pretty sure the time machine was one of my first like adult books that I read as a, as a young fella, as a little kid. And, um, <laughs> you know, because he was, he was, he was everywhere in, in the books I had about the history of the genre, it was always Jules Verne and HG Wells. And they were both considered to be, you know, fathers of sorts of the genre. And mm. apart from that, I, I, I can speak very authoritatively on his kind of 
you know, very important science fictional books, but I know less about uh, the rest of his career, his um, his ideas, his politics, and, and I suppose I'm going to learn a few things in this episode, like whether or not he should really be a hero of mine. <laughs> oh, yeah, so I've been doing some research of late into uh, the non-fiction career of uh, Herbert George Wells, um, known to his friends as uh, Bertie. And so it was actually kind of only really after 1900 when he started to branch out into nonfiction that he, he crafted the image of the resplendent man of letters, H.G. Wells, which was not, again, who, who people knowing him growing up uh, uh, had known, in fact. So, yeah, I've been researching some of his political commentary, some of his kind of he was he identified himself and, and, and sought to make himself a kind of a, a proto-futurist. Um, even saying to his agent, like, I want to get into the future business, you know, in uh, in about 1900, 1901 or thereabouts, identifying kind of, I think, um, a, a movement at that time, which is probably something that we can remember as kids. You know, in the late 90s, there was this thing like in in the year 2000. Beyond 2000 yeah. was a TV show that... Yeah, everything everything was 2000. And it was, so it was the idea, like at the fantasy act, like, there's something transformational happening, whether we like it or not. And Wells was someone who wanted to be on the cutting edge of cultural, um, social and political commentary at that time. And of course, it was, you know, you've kind of got, um, you know, 100 years plus of the Industrial Revolution. You've got population shifts. You've got massive um, technological, scientific, medicinal changes on the horizon. And he was speaking to all of that, I think, imaginatively in his fiction of the mid to late 1890s, and then in sometimes ham-fisted nonfiction of the early 20th century. So um, I think, I think we'll, we'll talk a little bit about his, his early science fiction, uh, that being the stuff that I'm, I'm most familiar with. And like I said, the, he's incredibly prolific. Within about five years, he writes a number of books which are tremendously important. And you know, like I said, they're, they're, if, if you're very um, fluent in the, in the genre, there are various more obscure precursors to most of these, but like it's still, he's a sensation. So he comes out with, he writes The Time Machine in 1895. Uh, I think he writes The Island of Dr. Moreau in 1896. He first serializes War of the Worlds in 1897. Um, and then I think it comes out in book form in 1898. And uh, The Invisible Man was in there somewhere as well. I think by 1899, he writes the first version of what becomes When the Sleeper Wakes. So you have yeah. very quickly, you have these, like it's it's pretty much the first large scale alien invasion novel. It's, you know, the first time travel novel, the first invisibility. It's not the first invisibility novel, but it's the first one that, you know, it, it's the trope namer as, as TV tropes might, might call it. Editing key in here, just worth noting a few important Victorian precursors to invisibility in, in fiction would include things like Ambrose Bierce's The Damned Thing, which is still worth a read, uh, Guy de Maupassant famously wrote The Horla, and uh, Corkman Fitzjames O'Brien once wrote a story called What Was It? One which we did an episode on a long time ago where I read the whole thing. So worth checking out if you're interested. So again, like there are, there are earlier versions of some of these, but he, there's something about the way he puts them. He's got a polish, he's got a, a, a very readable style, and he's incredibly literary and he's he's doing two things at once oh and i think 1901 then is the um the first man of the moon which is which is my probably my favorite that and, and war of the worlds i think so he's he's doing two things with these novels at the same time 
he's exercising a tremendous imagination. Uh, there's all of these novels contain like genuinely fantastic imagery um, and very creative world building with alien planets, alien creatures, um, futuristic technologies, stuff that doesn't exist. But he's getting all of his social ideas in there as well. And there's like, for, first and foremost, to me, there's this critique of imperialism, which is implicit in War of the Worlds, which I have some stories about. And um, he's just dealing with the world of the late Victorian era and critiquing it, criticizing it. He has a lot to say about class, um, especially in the time machine where you have, you know, this, this imagined future where England, the English people literally evolve into an upper class and a lower class who are physically different beings. He has a lot to say about evolution in general because he, he had an undergrad degree in zoology and he was lectured by the famous T.H. Huxley, who and it was the grandfather of Aldous Huxley and was known as Darwin's bulldog. So he was, the, he was a, uh, basically a public intellectual, very well known for promoting uh, Darwin's ideas of evolution at the time. And probably was most famous for the, the, the Oxford debate of 1860, which was at the, I think it was the Oxford um, uh, Public Museum or the Oxford University Museum, where he squared off against uh, Soapy Sam Wilberforce, who was a famous church speaker and anti-evolutionist. And um, I went to visit the, this particular site a few years ago with friends when I was living in Surrey. And there was, you know, a plaque and a statue and stuff to show that this famous face-off had happened. It was a bit like an earlier version of the, the Scopes Monkey Trial. You know, it was this very hyped media event where these two worldviews were facing off. And uh, Darwin, of course, himself was very ill for a good chunk of his life after his famous voyages and couldn't physically be there, but his place was represented by T.H. Huxley. And um, when I was there, there was this little kid who was running around and just kind of being a brat and like knocking over exhibits. And his, his mother was this um, very, very posh woman who was calling at the kid and saying, Huxley, Huxley, darling, come back here. And the kid's no. name Huxley. Horrendous. I just have to wonder, like, was he named after this guy? <laughs> Is that why they've come here? Um, so, so Darwin was, or Wells was very influenced by evolution, and it's all over War of the Worlds, and um, the idea that in the future, because you know the ideas of Mars were very prominent at the time. So, the Mars of War of the Worlds is like a future dying world. It's very based on the ideas of of Percival Lowell and the canals and all of that stuff. The idea that Mars is an older world than Earth, therefore its inhabitants would be like us, but a little further down the evolutionary chain. And therefore, they're all brain. They're these creatures that have these tiny shrunken bodies, and they're almost entirely brain. And he, he, he mentions that they use technology. They use their giant walking machines the way a man would use a bicycle or another, another piece of technology as an extension of the body that they've lost, the physical body uh, that they have lost. And interestingly, in the history of the alien greys, which I talk about a lot in the show, Wells is cited as one of the kind of primordial sources for this idea that in the future, futuristic people will be shrunken in the body, but largely expanded in the head. And he writes an article called The Man of the Year Million, where he postulates the potential future evolution for man. So a lot of, lot of he's dealing with really hot, important topics for his time, both biological, scientific, social, uh, and class related. Yeah, I think one of the things that made his um, kind of serialized fiction take off is not just the kind of the rampaging imagination at hand, but it was also that he is it i'm trying to think is it called wells law or something where it's like you have something that's tangible and material to the world of your readership that can be used as a key towards something that's completely um otherworldly 
I and think it's so, like you have, you're allowed to have one crazy thing that happens that's different from reality, but you try and make everything else realistic. Okay, so yeah, I have it in, at like the in inverse. Like worlds, like Martians Invade, which is out there, but the way it's told is incredibly deadpan, and the way the journalist responds to everything is incredibly realistic, and he's using real places. He's Apparently, he took great, great joy in destroying that part of uh, Surrey, which I, I lived there for a while as well, and I used to travel to all the places named in the book, so the Battleton, Battle of Shepparton Weybridge and Leatherhead and... Uh, um, I've, I traveled to where the Martians first land in um, Horsell Common in, in Woking. But so I think Wells was really good at incorporating new material, new technology and new theories into um, his stories. He's kind of seize on some new invention, new story. He'd combine it with the trends that were kind of taking flight within the world of fiction. You know, like, for example, something like Lost World or Double Identities or like you mentioned, Invisibility. These were kind of, you know, things that were taking off. He would usually combine this with some sort of new development in technology or, or within, you know, the social scientific theorizing or whatever. And he grounded it in reality, like you said, with the kind of detail-oriented writing. Um, and you, again, you kind of, what's wonderful about quintessentially Victorian writing is that even when you go to otherworldly places, Victoriana is present and you know I mean that's kind of why science fiction often is is just so alluring to readers is because you know no matter how far you go it's always a reflection of where you are at home. I do I will point out that the unlike a lot of writers from this period who who I am still fond of he has a he has a decisively anti-imperial bent to some of his writings so there's a story famously that War of the Worlds was conceived when himself and his brother are walking on Horsell Common in Surrey and they're debating the merits of I think what the British are doing to the Tasmanian people which was wiping them out effectively and yeah. obviously the standard you know British Victorian view was well you know we're on top because we're better and we're therefore morally we're allowed to do this and I think Wells just said well what if I don't know Martians just landed right here and they just happen to have better tech than us do they have the right then to rule us? Is that all there is to it? So there's a kind of a nihilistic or at least an amoral tone to the book where there's no good or bad in the universe. There are just some races that have better tech than others. And there's a distinctly anti-religious take in the book as well, where religion is of no help to anybody during this terrible crisis. Mm. And famously, the ending happens not because of anything that anybody does. You know, it, it's just chance that the, 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 the bacteria wipe out the Martians he says, after all the puny devices of man had failed, it was the tiniest of creatures who God in his wisdom had chosen to put on, on the earth. And he, he's using that kind of sarcastically because he was notoriously anti-church. But uh, interestingly, when George Powell made the film version in 1953, um, he was a very strong Christian and there's a huge Christian message in that film. And he uses the exact same line of text, but he, he delivers it uh, uh, more straight faced, I think. <laughs> Yeah, I think like so you mentioned that um, well studied under Thomas um, Henry Huxley, T.H. Huxley. Um, and I think then that, you know, kind of illuminated to him both the I suppose the pot potential of science as a as a as a skeleton key to unlock humanity, but also kind of the fragility of science. So he was always aware of that as well. But at the same time, I think the other great influence upon him throughout his life was um, socialism as again, a kind of a. I suppose a political flag, but also as a, as a, again, as a sort of a skeleton key to understand human society. And 
he was really influenced by um, Henry George, who wrote a book in 1879 called Progress and Poverty. And it was kind of like one of the first progressive economics books that sort of looked at why is it that when booms, uh, economic booms come, they come with poverty as well. So like when wealth accumulates, the pie doesn't uh, like each slice doesn't get bigger, you know, like um, the, the it's essentially about wealth inequality. And so this was kind of, again, he kind of led a movement that's often called Georgism. Again, it's a, and it's about the power of government or the necessity of using government power to intervene in the market to regulate and also to, to redistribute wealth in essence. And it was kind of like it was an expose for a lot of people of kind of, I suppose, some of the hidden effects of that that uh, of um, um, prosperity that prosperity brings poverty and so like someone like Wells who was kind of he wasn't upper class but he was middle class uh, and he probably wouldn't have been you know cheek to jowl with the levels of de deprivation and suffering that would have abounded within England at this time and so books like this were kind of really um, important for people like him who became lifelong committed socialists. And I think as well, it's like really important to think about the progressive movement at that time in both the US and the UK, but also in Europe as something where it was like, this is the kind of the era where um, the study of social phenomenon gets kind of codified into the language of science um, in that, you know, we can understand these things in terms of variables, cause and effect, we can tinker and produce new um, outcomes that are more desirable or whatever, you know, and and so his understanding of science mixed quite nicely for him with this new progressive Georgist and socialist kind of a, a way of looking at economics. Um, and again, he's going to go down this road with some of his uh, nonfiction writing in terms of this is what we should do if we want to create a society that is, let's say, in his case, more fair, more just, et cetera, et cetera. I think his father was a, like a professional sportsman or something. Cricketer? He was a, cr a cricketer. Yeah. And it, this, like this was, an, I remember discovering this when I was younger, when I was working in Surrey and we had a, a school group visiting the place I worked and there was a teacher there who was a big fan of Wells and I was a big fan of Wells and we were talking for the whole week that they were there and somehow she got a copy of this biography that she gave me at the end of the week as a gift, which was really nice. I don't know where she got it in that little town, but I like it, the book tried to explain how like to us today, oh, you know, if, you, if your family, you have professional sports people, like that's a big deal. Those are, they make good money and they're very well respected. Whereas in Victorian times, there was still a touch of, they could be kind of celebrities. You have your WG graces and, and you know, people who are well-known sports people, but they're still, they're still working with their hands. They're still, you know, they, there's a touch of the, they're not top tier and they're not necessarily upper class. Well, it would have been absolutely brand new, you know, like, uh, the idea of creating organized teams with codified rules and all that kind of stuff like that's high Victoriana like that's the, the Victorian mindset in a nutshell is like we can't just have lads ramp rampaging in a field kicking around a pig's head and then eventually someone gets beaten up because people are angry because they can't agree on who how you win this game like th this was when all the leagues were set up and commissioners and it's all organized and and so before long you know you're creating the infrastructure where the, because you know this is how heroes develop and then you can leverage that to get a higher pay because people want to see it really bad interestingly while cricket in england does have a longer history of organization than for example soccer or football uh, wells's father was still playing in the middle of the 19th century uh, as a professional at a time when cricket professionals 
received only a, a meagre amount of money coming entirely from donations of charitable fans. And like again, like the key of this is if you look at any English um, or even Scottish like soccer club on their jerseys, they almost always have the year that they yeah, were inaugurated. And so 1880s or 1890s. 1880s. It's almost all 1880s. Yeah. So that's Same for Irish sports too. I mean, that's when the Gaelic Games comes around and yeah, the GA was founded, I think, in uh, 1888, wasn't it? I think so, or, or something nine, like yeah. that. Now, there's yeah. other political things going on in Ireland at the same time that are also, but you're right, it is a time of organization and of kind of canonization of rules and organizations for lots yeah. of people. They call this the, the age of anxiety. I don't know if you ever heard that expression where um, essentially like there was a feeling of, and this is what you're discussing um, about uh, what, what Wells is tapping into with Mars being ahead of Earth as an older society, is that there's an, an inevitability an inevitable slide towards decline yeah. and decadence, right? Like our sclerosis and that people felt as though, again, there was aspects of the of Victorian society that were being touted as, oh, this is us decadent, which by the way is a major theme in discussion in kind of like um, certain right-wing cultural circles today that we've become that decadent. That would be all over War of the Worlds. It would be all over the time machine. Uh, it would be, you know, the man of the year million. It's like, there is this kind of inevitable conclusion to, which is, again, is, is kind of a funny way of thinking about evolution. It's more social than it is actually biological. Evolution doesn't work towards any kind of inevitable goal. Nope. That's not how it works, but that is how it, it is often characterized. Um, even, so, yeah, e even still today. I mean, I think there's a lot of willful ignorance there. People are just yeah. like, this is a useful metaphor and it doesn't matter that it's wrong. I'm going to use yeah. it for my own ends. I like to use the words like evolve or de-evolve to imply that, if, you know, there's some kind of natural goals and natural endpoint, whereas that's just not how it works. Like every every generation in evolution has to be just right for exactly that time and place, or else yeah. it doesn't survive and it doesn't pass on. Yeah, it's 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 a false tel teleology. But uh, so like one thing that's interesting is that in his own time, even he got what you might consider like the the greatest achievement of any public intellectual is that he got a, a kind of a word. That, that summarizes a whole suite of ideas named after him, which is the Wellsian, right? Like Kafkaesque or Orwellian. And what's interesting is that Wellsian in his time was all about his kind of um, prophetic, progressive utopian ideas about using science to order society. But, you know, again, I think his actual longer legacy is in the more um, kind of ang anxious, concerned about decadent maybe even borderline apocalyptic visions that are kind of in those kind of that that 1895 to 1900 where he gets a whole bunch of just like stunning science fiction books out there and one of the ones that I meant to say when you were listing them off my personal favorite is the island of Dr. Moreau yes which gets gets it all in there you know yeah. scientists tinkering with yeah. humanity at genetic and social levels and then um I think and then all of the evolution stuff in there too. Particular 1890s thing, the the the, the um, controversy over vivisection, which was a huge deal at the time, which is, you know, doing it, opening up animals while they're still alive, which is pretty pretty awful. And and I suppose analogous to the arguments today about all kinds of animal testing, but it was a real hot button topic at the time. So it would have been seen, in one way, as being very of the moment. Um, but yeah. obviously having far more wider implications. There's a great, um, the version of the first men in the moon I have has a great um, intro where they say, most people point to the island of Dr. Moreau as you know the classic indictment of the mad scientist or the dangerous scientist. And he says, you know, he's a real, like Moreau is a really obvious 
bad danger villain, you know, but in <laughs> what, what's the name of the um, Cavor, Professor Cavor in, in First Man of the Moon, he's a much more subtle indictment of the scientist because he's like your classic goofy, absent-minded kind of scientist who he, he just wants to do, I'm just doing this for science, you know, I just want to learn what happens. And he's kind of careless and his experiments kill people and he doesn't really care. He accidentally blows up his house and kills all his assistants and he's like well you know yeah it happens you know you got you got to break a few eggs and <laughs> you know he does his, his um his misadventures actually have terrible repercussions for humanity potentially at the end but he himself is just kind of bumbling seemingly harmless figure so it's like wells is saying you know if we believe that science is this neutral thing that only wants truth you know, we're missing out on some of the problems that come along with it. And it can't ever be this neutral thing because we're humans and we have everything we look at, everything we study, we're affecting anyway. Yeah, funnily enough, so later on in his life, when he was close to death, I suppose, uh, in the 40s, he had a public argument with Orwell about the nature of science. And Orwell essentially made those points, which is science is kind of, by definition, a, a value neutral proposition. And so long as it's done by fallible human beings, you know, who can be corrupted by other outside forces or maybe absent minded in certain ways, you can end up kind of, you know, pursuing the acquisition of new knowledge that then contributes to something like the mass murder of the Holocaust or whatever. That was Orwell's point is like Germany had some of the finest scientists in the world and they sleepwalked along with the Nazis towards um, towards doom. And it's interesting that at that time, Wells had become kind of someone who was like far more of a flag waving science is the skeleton key of progress that's going to unleash a better future. And he thought that like he essentially thought that um, scientific rationalism could create the order required by humanity. So like Wells ended up being fearful of disorder and he thought that rationality implemented by a meritocratic kind of scientific elite could deliver that whereas orwell was just like have you met any of these people you know <laughs> this is the crit this is the, again the criticism that wells gets from from like the likes of conrad and others which is like you just you fundamentally don't understand human nature and the parts of human nature that cause problems for your project you say oh we can use really smart people to like cook that out of les autres the others you know are the undesirables and in some case like he goes down the explicitly genocidal road route in certain places um but we'll get to that right and so when it, when i hear that sort of talk it, it it reminds me of i suppose eugenics inevitably because a lot of these thinkers at the turn of the century and then on into the tens and twenties who you know would have supported other things that i would have found progressive at the time um, and have these ideas about you know science being a positive thing and you know they would also consider themselves maybe philanthropists in some way or they're people who want to make the world better they they sometimes drift into this this kind of thinking and yeah again it's part of it's part of the the basis of the progressive worldview which is what kind of world do we want well let's use the let's tools at our disposal to create it bring it about yeah and so you know like the kind of i suppose the, at least the conservative and maybe even the liberal critique of that is um, we're better off working with what we have rather than imagining some sort of uh, non-existent perfect and then shooting towards that right like that in the pursuit of a perfect world you will almost inevitably have to do things that are 
inexcusable. Um, it's kind of like, again, like this is the root of utopian thinking, which really goes back to Plato's Republic, which is, you know, Socrates asks, what is justice? They have a discussion and Socrates says, well, if justice is X, well, what would a society singularly motivated towards delivering that would look like? And it's kind of like all these things that maybe human beings like and we get pleasure from, but don't contribute to justice. Well, they have to go. So like one thing is, you know, uh, the family, right? Families stop certain people who could, under other circumstances, be the best version of themselves because of, the, you know, the, the familial ties and, and um, the sentiments that build up around that, et cetera, et cetera. So like Socrates proposes, you know, taking kids away from their parents so that they can be identified at a young age as having certain set, sets of skills and talents, and then they can be kind of, you know, pulled off to be able to develop those kinds of things. And Wells is attracted to this, like there's all, you know, like the great dichotomy is you've got Plato who, whether he means it or not, has Socrates proposed this sort of utopian idealist vision. And then you've got Aristotle who's more pragmatic, which is given what we know about human beings in the kind of world that we do live in, what can, what can we do while acknowledging that there is a best, what can we do to, to be okay? And Wells is attracted to the idealistic, you know, sort of pseudo-Platonic, let's say, or Neoplatonist vision of let's aim for the absolute best. And that might require us to sacrifice a few things along the way. So he's very much, he's like, I have a beautiful omelet in my head and these are eggs and I'm going to break them because as the saying goes, if you want to make, a, make an omelet, you're going to have to break some eggs. And so... He's got that utopian um, style of thinking, which went kind of hand in hand with especially early 20th century progressivism. And that's kind of, again, where the eugenic stuff comes in. Like, can we perfect right, this idea of human perfectibility, which runs through uh, political and social thinking over the centuries? And eugenics kind of conjured that in a particularly horrific way which wasn't just like, what can we do to bring the best out of people? Does that involve education? Does that involve um, discipline? Does that involve um, uh, luxury, leisure, whatever? Um, no, it involves like kind of selective breeding along the line. Like again, along a kind of a maybe ignorant reading of Darwin or maybe a willfully ignorant reading of Darwin. Yeah, and as, as far as I know, like Darwin himself was not was reason was was horrified by this sort of thinking as it was expressed during his own lifetime or at least he wasn't in favor of it um let's we'd be remiss to talk about eugenics and go straight for the nazis and let some other groups of people off the hook because it's it's worth mentioning that um i mean a lot of their ideas came from stuff that was practiced in america before they were doing it and that wells of course would have lived through the period in the tens, twenties, and, and even the early thirties, when this stuff was, was happening in practice in, in the US, uh, they, there were programs for of sterilization uh, for people who were considered, you know, unfit, whether that was for reasons of criminal, supposed criminality, um, or other people with various, uh, you know, physical defects or mental defects. And um, yeah, there's, there's a history there that isn't spoken of quite as frequently as, as what the Germans did later. But I mean, this stuff wasn't unknown and wasn't unheard of, and public intellectuals all around the world were in favor of this. And, you know, this wasn't some niche idea. This was being practiced by, you know, by, by the U.S. government. Yeah, and, um, and by a government that was uh, that, that self-identified as progressive and viewed these um, actions as in the name of progress. 
right? Like again, progress is possible if we if we control things and if we manipulate the variables in the right kind of way. And again, some of those variables are weeding out supposedly inferior people. And um, in like, well, Wells wrote a book in 1901, which was actually kind of his path towards larger fame and fortune. This is when um, Bertie Wells became H.G. Wells in that he developed a public persona and now he was going to be hobnobbing with elites and elites were listening to him and et cetera, et cetera. And the book is called, this is when he decided that um, fiction was, was less attractive to him and he wanted to write uh, more nonfiction. He said to his agent in 1899, for this year and the years to come, I'm the futurity man. <laughs> so he was deliberately trying to kind of um, exploit a niche in the market or, um, he saw a gap in the market, let's say, to, as a prognosticator. And so he writes this book in 1901 called Anticipations of the Reaction of Mechanical and Scientific Progress Upon Human Life and Thought. And so what he does is he kind of tries to bring in some um, base level reflections on um, technological change. Like uh, he has a whole, like the first couple of chapters are predominantly about how cars and buses are going to change society. He's got this weird section where he's talking about like, here's what we need to do to accommodate roads that have both horses and cars on them at the same time, <laughs> stuff like that. You know, he's had has lots of hits, of course, in terms of his uh, predictions and, and a few misses. Uh, he had a short story called "The Land Ironclads," which is like a particularly Victorian way of describing what we would recognize as a tank. So, an ironclad was a a warship, like a, an armored um, dreadnought or some sort of warship. And he, in his book, he describes these things as they're like ships, but they go on the land and they have some kind of proto caterpillar tracks. And uh, this is just about, it's very pre-World War One kind of feeling, but it's, I think it's about 1901 or thereabouts. Apparently when the tanks kind of um, crawled onto the battlefields of World War One, he took it very hard. So he didn't wow. feel like, um, he didn't feel happy. Oh, look, I got this one right. And like, apparently he went into kind of a nervous breakdown and had a funk and his, his hair started to fall out. And um, he even briefly had like um, a kind of a religious conversion that his friends mercilessly jabbed him over and then he um, renounced it. But like supposedly World War One was a was a traumatic thing for him. He felt as though some of his ideas coming to life on those battlefields was he predicted like very pointedly tanks. And air but, warfare in in the he had a book called The War in the Air. There were blimps in the First World War that bombed London, and yeah, I, I can see why he would have felt. But he he invented a board game called Little Wars, which, you know, if you're sort of a D and D person and you know your history, D and D came from obviously fantasy stuff, but also tabletop miniature wargaming in the mm. early 20th century, and he's credited with with inventing that too. Funnily enough, he thought that. Uh... I'm trying to think which one did he write this what i can't remember which of his books he wrote this in but i read that he thought that aerial warfare especially large-scale bombing was going to be the catalyst for the end of all war because it would cause such horror and awe kind of like i guess this was the he this was the, the bomb. yeah yeah this is the argument that you know kind of truman used MAD. that we yeah, when they when they dropped the atomic bomb in Japan, that like we had to awe them with this terrifying power. Um, and what what's funny is that when you think about how how just not only that that didn't happen, but that now 
we have drone strikes, you know, it's become so routine. And yeah. I mean, obviously there is a degree to which drone strikes um, kind of demonstrate that he wasn't entirely wrong in that we need to divorce and, and distance ourselves from this process. But we, we, we know don't want to feel complicit. Anything will shock people into stopping wars. Like we, that concept is gone, you know? Yeah. If, if, it, if the nuclear bomb didn't do it, like <laughs> what's going to do it? Um, so in, in the Anticipations book from 1901, he was trying to become a sober forecaster of what he called human ecology. So that's one for you, Kian, as an ecologist. Um, and, and interestingly enough, this is where, again, I think he, there's, a, there's a bit of a pattern where through the fiction, it's the, uh, the political themes go from being a little bit more implicit, implied, maybe even esoteric, then they start to become a little bit, you know, the volume gets turned up. By this time, he wrote to a friend and said that his design in this book was to undermine and destroy the monarch, monogamy, faith in God and respectability and the British Empire all under the guise of speculation about motor cars and electrical heating. Oh, when? <laughs> so again, he's the first couple of chapters are all very like big, big technological changes are coming. You're probably feeling a little bit anxious about this. You're probably feeling a little bit um, unsure as what's to come. But let me make some predictions and let me also tell you what we should do with and about this kind of stuff. And then later on in the book, it goes into, this is what we need to do to create a perfect society. Um, because he basically thought, that scientific progress as it was unfolding. And he probably saw this as a determinate um, unfolding, like a determinate process, I would say, you know, kind of like, again, like evolution, it's going to happen a certain way. Domino A falls, knocks over domino B and so on and so forth. But he thought that the existing political and social structures in the likes of England and America were incompatible with scientific projects, with scientific progress. And that unless big changes were made in order to get the human project in line with the scientific project, there was going to be some sort of calamitous um, outcome. So what he thought was you needed one government um, run by a meritocratic rationalist elite. Um, he calls the ruling clique in anticipations uh, the New Republic, which again shows his kind of platonic inheritance there or his tip in the cap to, to old Plato. Um, he goes back in later books and kind of comes up with this again. He tries it multiple times <laughs> and um, he calls it later um, uh, the open conspiracy. That's like the name of the, the, the elite in the last version that he puts forward. Um, funnily enough, in the, in the book that he writes in 1905 called A Modern Utopia. I'm not sure if you read that one, Keen. I'd say you'd like it. That he calls the, uh, the, the elite who runs society the samurai. What? <laughs> and uh, I, I actually, I went to the bother of checking my copy of Edward Said's Orientalism to oh. see, is there anything on H.G. Wells, obviously fascination with, uh, with samurais as, you know, probably. An example of Orientalism. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm trying to think, he called them, he was, he called them some sort of, um, what, do he, what does he call them? Uh, voluntary nobleman. So I thought that, you know, it's like this, um, this is him, like his Victorian heritage where he's got like obviously baggage related to class, but he's also a committed socialist where he doesn't want class to determine everything about yeah. people's lives. So he's like, okay, nobles, but they're volunteers. 
And and I guess again, you know, like sa samurai is a bit of a Rorschach test for you know Westerners. Like they look at Japan; it's this mystical place. You've got this Especially honor code. Nineties, like the Japanophilia is going crazy with the impressionists and and uh, Gilbert and Sullivan and yeah, all sorts of. Yeah, exactly. And so you know, it's uh, it's it's opaque, right? They can see a little bit through, but they can't see everything. Japan has closed itself off from for so long, and. And uh, it's just it's hilarious so it, that he calls them the, the samurai. So that's what he calls them in the uh, in the 1905 book, which is called a, New, a Modern Utopia. But in anticipations, they're called uh, the New Republic. And basically, these rationalist scientific elites have to control society for the betterment of all in the in uh, concert with scientific progress. They should reorganize society. He kind of goes back and forth over the like over the next couple of years when he's writing about this. So he's not he's not he can't really decide whether or not these are the ultimates who should be granted total power to manipulate society according to the grand design, or whether or not we should have the kind of classic liberal distrust of power. You know, like uh, the famous quote from Lord Acton: "Power corrupts absolute. Power corrupts absolutely." It sounds like he's dealing. He's trafficking in a lot of ideas which show up in like as the boogeyman in conspiracy thinking he is he's outwardly calling it a conspiracy uh you know a, a secret or not so secret cabal uh and he's talking about a one world government and he probably calls it the new world order at some point if that phrase existed at the time he's talking Likely. about he would have been aware of the 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 elders of, of zion hoax whether or not he knew it was a hoax at the time i don't know but you know like this idea that a secret group of people are pulling the strings like even then had sinister connotations and it's funny i don't see his name showing up in you know he's not his name doesn't show up in the list of boogeymen on far right anti conspiracy stuff but no trafficking in a lot of these ideas he he got called an anti semite when kind of identifying who some of the weaker people in the world are uh, who would need to be controlled by the samurai or the the new republic etc um, and he recanted it very powerfully um and he said similar things about um black people as well on both sides so um he one of the things that's interesting about him was that he could and you see this in, in how he like draws his characters in his fiction as well that he's seems to be acutely aware of hubris and the predilections of your average people towards vainglorious mistakes etc cetera, etc cetera. but in his um non-fiction he seems to think he he has again a kind of a classic victorian um lost for the order that can be brought about by great men you know the the great men theory of history you know like there are people who are designated to move the the pawns around on the chessboard and they can control pawns who left to their own devices will probably do stupid stuff and so again this is where a lot of his contemporaries the likes of orwell and conrad before him criticized him saying great men actually can't control the irrationality of um your average person and also great men are irrational too um so in anticipations kind of like again he buries the lead but the main event is that he buys wholesale into malthusianism which is the idea that we are spiraling towards our doom due to overpopulation and so this kind of comes to a really ugly head in the last chapter of the book which is called the faith morals and public policy of the new republic and in this he writes malthus is one of those cardinal figures in intellectual history 
who state definitively for all time things apparent enough after their formulation, but never effectively conceded before. Probably no more shattering book than the essay on population has ever been or ever will be written. So essentially saying Malthus is saying an eternal truth that once said everybody has to recognize and that this is, you know, one of the greatest books of all time. He also writes, this is again how um, both earnestly but also kind of gravely he takes this. He says, all dreams of earthly golden ages must either be futile or insincere or both until the problems of human increase are manfully faced. Which basically means you can have all desires and designs upon paradise, but unless we get this population issue under control, we're in deep trouble. It's also hilarious that he says that these problems have to be manfully faced, <laughs> which is good quality stuff. Um, so yeah, in this last chapter, his project to control what he deems overpopulation. Malthus is like, he's a, he's a recurring boogeyman in the sense that like almost everybody who had awful ideas yeah. <laughs> thought that Malthus was onto something. Um, so he goes into this, not just Malthusian, but then also social Darwinistic and eugenicist kind of, kind of vantage point that again, nobody comes out uh, look, smelling like roses with. So he, he thought that the greatest obstacle to progress was overpopulation. And he said that there were inferior people in the world, direct quote. Um, and he calls them at one stage, the people of the abyss. So I guess he means that people are just hopeless yeah. uh, at a genetic level. You know, they're not going to succeed. And he basically says they have to be genocided um, in order to allow those who can um, prosper to prosper. Because well, they're... Is this? When is he 1901. 1901. So he's, and, and, and very importantly, he gets some fame from his serialized fiction um, in the late, like mid to late 1890s. But this is the book that makes him a public intellectual and a head that people are listening to, taking seriously, acknowledging, because he, he outs himself kind of as like, I am the prognosticator, listen to me. And he could kind of say, I wrote this book five years ago that said there would be thing that we now have. Yeah. And so he was like, you should take me seriously. My imagination is not just imagination. It's this kind of almost clairvoyant level. And he recognizes in this chapter of the uh, Anticipations book, he recognizes like what he's saying. He's not just, he's not callous. Um, well, he is callous about it, but he's he not like- He recognizes that it's, it's intense and it's, it's, not, it's hard to swallow and not everybody is going to be on board with this. And like, yeah, you recognize that he's playing with fire when he and says- he's, yeah, like he, he literally says the last lines in the chapter are, well, the world is a world, not a charitable institution. And I take it, they will have to go. They being the people of the abyss. Just pretty. That's rough, yeah. It's really bad. And what he says is, again, this kind of goes back to what Socrates proposes in the Republic, which is if we want a society oriented towards justice, what are you willing to sacrifice to make that real? Because if you're not willing to sacrifice that, well, I guess all your huffing and puffing about justice being incredibly important is nothing more than huffing and puffing, right? So again, if the family is an obstacle to justice, just because you like the family doesn't mean it's, you know, again, we like eating uh, KFC double down sandwiches. <laughs> it doesn't mean it's good for justice. So he says that the new republic, which is his visionary utopian society, has to have an ideal that will make killing worth the while. Right. 
So again, his he doesn't say justice, he says progress. And, that, and, and again, he has this fatalistic or deterministic view of science that like science is going where it's going. And we're either going to let us, uh, let it sweep us up in its hurricane and probably cause immense struggle, or we can sacrifice our goat to the great God and get on board. Uh, as we said, he lived long enough to see policies like this enacted in, you know, leading first world countries. And um, did this, did he, did he, alter his mind based on what happened or did he recant or so yeah he recanted and he recanted actually pretty quickly so it's not like he kind of looked back 20 years later and said oh shit maybe some of what i wrote influenced this stuff now he had a receptive audience for this because as you said at the time there were active it eugenics wasn't, programs wasn't an uncommon idea i mean no not at all no. and 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 again like the people that would have been influenced by the same kinds of things that he were like socialism and the idea that, again, we can kind of centrally plan a society that will be perfect. Um, and again, some of his kind of similarly uh, minded, you know, biological kind of influences, etc. They were swimming in these waters with him. But he got very harsh criticism from the more literary types, the, the humanitarian kind of minded or humanist, let's say, thinkers within literary circles. And... Um, he, he got very sharply criticized and kind of almost immediately renounced it. And like I said, he goes, he likes this idea of I'm going to design a utopia that will involve some degree of rationalist elite using science to give us a better future. But later versions of this are far more liberal in temperament in that like they try to make far more space for individual liberty he tries to like prioritize equality between the sexes and the races. He makes sure to say things like in, in later books, like a modern utopia, he says stuff like in my previous writing on this topic, you might have thought that I suggested that Jews were to blame for. However, that's not, you know, like he right. really it, like it, it kind of genuine contrition. Is there, um, is, there a, is there a compassion? I mean, to me, like that's the huge thing that's missing from you know this kind of hyper supposedly rational kind of eugenicist thinking of like you know if we want things to be better we have to choose all the best of everything and breed those and everything else hits the wall and it's like you can make that make sound like it makes a certain kind of harsh logical sense on paper but what's missing is compassion if you like you know if you don't care about people's rights if you think that people don't have it don't deserve to exist regardless of who they are or what they are or what they do or don't contribute like is, is that how does that element creep into it at any point i would say like what uh so i was reading a book by dorian linsky which is about um the kind of, kind of like it's like a social history of 1984 by george orwell and he, what he says is that once wells got the reputation as a prognosticator he kind of got kneecapped imaginatively and he became colder and and you know like the, there is a compassion in his fiction that dries up once he starts to think to himself like oh people are really taking me seriously as someone who has the answers um regards to creating a better future and so what what linsky says is that like wells recognized the callousness of some of his earlier writings but he never lost the idea that like humanity was a problem that needed to be fixed or that people were messy and required tidying up mm. um and that you know again people in in, in loftier aristocratic positions are the ones to, to do that 
But like what Linsky says is that like his writing after 1900 becomes very like propagandistic, pedagogical, almost like our, our patrician. Is, would yeah. that be the word? Like uh, like a patricianal? I don't know. It's a term um, that's, I mean, often levied at in, environmentalists who are sometimes portrayed as being anti-people. They see people as a problem rather than as a resource or as something, you know, in, worthwhile in and of themselves. And again, it, it can be the same kind of thinking. Um, yeah, Jordan Peterson is mad on that. Like that's he he takes that criticism as his reasoning to say, like, we don't have to worry about the climate crisis because which environmentalists is, you know, are anti-human. Taking one problem and replacing it with another problem. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about um, when, when the sleeper wakes, because that's that's first serialized, I think, in 1899. This is I, I when I was making my way through his novels as a kid. This is where I dropped out because I think as a kid I was coming for the for the aliens and the ray guns and the invisible men and this is when I detected wait a minute like there there are still science fictional ideas here but he's lecturing me about politics in a way that is far more overt and grandstanding than it was before and that incidentally when the sleeper awakes is a good example of exactly what I'm just describing in that so it comes out in 1899 serialized and then he rewrites it in 1910 and it's published as a standalone book i think it's just called the sleeper awakes and and it's got like revisions on all of his you know like oh this is stuff i was wrong about 10 years ago like let me fix it you know and it's substantive yeah it's substantively the same but it's like a couple of little things here again where you could read in or a little bit of anti-semitism or a little bit of racism he's like oh let me let me squeeze that out you know but from what from what i recall as a kid reading it like this guy it has really bad insomnia and he doesn't sleep for a month and then when he does sleep he sleeps for like hundreds of years and yeah, he, wakes up he, sl- he sleeps for 203 years and he wakes up in this futuristic london which has like moving sidewalks and aeropile kind of aircraft things and it's something like he made some small investment when he was still awake in his past life and um, it's grown and grown and grown and now he's like the richest man in the world even for, just for doing nothing yeah, it's, co- it's uh, compound interest. That's what happens. <laughs> so he wakes up and he's the ruler of the world or something? Or he's, yeah. he's incredibly... Well, it's, like, it's like, yeah, people people managing his money control the world, like, in his name. Yes. And then when he wakes up, they're like, okay, we cede the authority to you. But then he uh, he has kind of a clash with it's kind of a, I guess, like a pseudo-fascist kind of style guy who's trying to take over the place. That is, is that, that's what happened. Of some kind, he 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 just like he goes back and forth between supporting the ruling class and the, the revolutionaries, and there's all this fighting with the aero piles. Um, I'm trying to think what's the name of the guy. I, I just distinctly remember as a kid being like, "Oh, this is when his tone changed, and this is when he went from telling these stories of pure imagination with with undertones of of morality to you know this kind of political grandstanding." I suppose. Yeah. Funnily enough, so. Not that long before he wrote When the Sleeper Awakes, he wrote in a book review um, in, um, I think, the Daily Express. He wrote, the philosopher who masquerades as a novelist violates the conditions of art that his gospel, uh, that his gospel may win notoriety and he discredits both himself and his message. So essentially what he's saying is if you're a philosopher and you're trying to write novels, you'll end up you know, um, discrediting your own philosophical message. So you should just write stories rather than writing philosophy. Mm-hmm. And uh, what, again, Dorian Linsky in this book on 1984 called The Ministry of Truth says is that he argues at least 
that when the sleeper awakes is the first time that Wells allows the politics to come front and center and to kind of dominate. And I mean, it's it's kind of a it's a classic anti-utopia and it's very influential in many like if the the London that he wakes up to after 203 years kind of looks like uh Christ I'm after forgetting the name of it what's the name of that Matt Damon movie that uh the guy who did District 9 directed Elysium would that be it maybe you've got you've got like a again a, a bloated rich elite up in the sky which is in some sort of paradise um and they're they live in pleasure cities and they're like all flabby and their their flesh is wasting away and all this kind of like wall-y and then as well it's a common trope yeah. really isn't it yeah but i think it a lot of it com- comes from from this and then I mean, you've it got sounds the, like it's, you're making it sound like a spin on the, the time machine anyway his his first novel. yeah and then the impoverished masses toil and squalor down on the ground you know working again kind of like the time machine um, and there's the the main character, yeah, he gets his uh, his compound interest, basically makes him unspeakably rich. They call him the, the master of the earth. And there's like a religion that's kind of developed around him where they worship him because he's this sleeping guy who's just super powerful. And then he has to um, to fight kind of with this guy called Ostrog. Ostrog, who, yeah. Who's kind of like, a, again, a kind of a proto-fascist or whatever. Um he hates democracy. He hates socialism, and he he wants to kind of uh, become the the Ubermensch. He's kind of like an, a Nietzschean, like a riff on the Nietzschean strongman, I think. And funnily enough, like you say, the Wells as as the as the writer kind of can't decide whether he sides with hmm. democracy and or socialism versus this kind of um, villainous. Ostrog character who's just going to like create order. Money itself being like the is is it a worship of money? That is that where the power comes from? I'm I'm thinking of Brave New World where you know it's explicitly a you know a take on sort of Henry Ford's style economics and you know where where the the efficiency of everything is what breeds the inhumanity and the obsession with with breaking down you know I think these monotonous routines. I think what Wells is getting at in When the Sleeper Awakes is the, the way in which wealth is generated through passive rent collection. You know, like, so you've right. got product, you know, there's the productive class and the non-productive is it a class. That, like he, he becomes the wealthiest man on earth just by sleeping through it and his money yeah. doesn't work for him and he's not generating any usefulness to society. Yeah, it's like, you know, in, in kind of popular economic parlance, you've got the makers and the takers. Yeah. And, you know, so like, um, makers make things and takers take the profit and yeah. so it's like this idea you don't actually have to do any work you know you just like walk around the factory floor while people work for you and then you you scoop up all the profits and you pay them almost nothing so it's like it's an explicit critique of the way in which capital works for the people who don't do the work right money works before he was a socialist but he wasn't a marxist yeah so he thought that marxism was misguided he didn't buy into it um, but he and and the way that a lot of people seem to put it, like, was that he tried to work with other socialist groups, but that he was just like imaginative beyond their capacity. Like, so he was, again, I suppose you could say a free thinker in the sense that he didn't buy into any dogmas. And most socialists tend to cluster around. We all believe in this version of it. You know, you've got the utopian socialists, the Fabian socialists, the scientific socialists, and you've got all these different brands of Marx, Mar- um, Marxism. And he called Marxism and a quote, an enfeebling mental epidemic of spite. Wow. So 
So he absolutely hated it. And uh, a lot of people said that like one of the things that was kind of useful for Wells with regards to the kind of the twin totalitarian ideologies that sprang up in during the like the peak of his fame, which were communism and fascism, was that he was just too arrogant to fall in line with, <laughs> with either of them. <laughs> yeah, because he thought like nobody knows better than me. Again, look look at my track record. I'm so smart. I'm was the he not some kind of, Was he any kind of apologist for Lenin or Stalin? I thought I thought I heard that he. Was so he, he went useful idiot, as as the phrase was. Um, I think he would. You could probably call him a useful idiot for Lenin. Um, he went and visited the Soviet Union in 1922. He met with Lenin. And he, he, he saw that basically like the place was a, a hellscape at that time, because, you know, what happened after 1917 was that you like the country was after the revolution was it was immediately invaded. Right. And so they were fighting and fighting and fighting. And then they did like war communism and then the NEP and then back to war communism and collectivism. And so it was just a complete disaster. And Wells bought into what Lenin sold him. Uh, in that he was a great man who could put order on this chaos and that he had a socialist vision and all this. And so Wells was very enthused, but he lost um, uh, faith in the project reasonably early and he saw that it was, it was going to hell. And very interestingly, he goes back to the Soviet Union in 1934 and interviewed Stalin for the New Republic newspaper oh, uh, magazine. And... Um, it's you can read the transcript of it. It's it's very bizarre because Wells is speaking kind of like a social democrat at this time. The New Deal was starting up in the U.S. from the year before. Wells thought that the New Deal was clearly influenced by some of his ideas, and he knew that some of the um, kind of public policy apparatchiks in FDR's cabinet were influenced by him. So he was he said something like. FDR is the vehicle that's going to deliver my vision into the world. And so he went and talked to Stalin to try and say, convince me that what's going on in America isn't true socialism versus what you're doing. And what's crazy is that like Stalin was about to go into the time of the purges and, you know, go and turn into a murderous, paranoid sort of lunatic. Like, you know, 34 is basically when Kirov was the guy who had an opportunity to maybe contest power with Stalin. And uh, he was uh, incarcerated and killed under, you know, well, he, I know he was murdered, actually. What happened was basically, I'm just remembering it now. I did a project on this in fifth class, uh, fifth, fifth year. Kirov was, was murdered and then, which Stalin orchestrated. And then he used that murder to blame it. He blamed that murder on... Um, Kamenev and Zinoviev, who were the other two kind of like standout heads from the early Bolshevik days, who had any chance of contesting his position atop the summit. And so like when Wells is talking to him in 1934, like Kirov is dead like two weeks later. And now we've got show trials every week for the next well, 20 he's years. On the, he's on the, on the cliff edge of like full lunacy at this point. Like this is the, the, some of the darkest times of Stalinism for people living in the country and people close to him. And Wells basically said, like, I, I'm not like he says, I said afterwards, like, I did not have a conversation with the socialist. I did not have a conversation with the man. Like, I had a conversation with a Marxist Leninist ideologue. And, that, and you can see, like, it's, it's almost like listening to, um, you know, a Trump surrogate, you know, it's just like everything is, is it's on rote, right? They're just going to regurgitate. 
there's no yeah 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 it, and it's very bizarre and one of the really interesting things is that by this time in the 30s wells was very very famous for writing all of these different utopias and etc he wrote like um one of the first large-scale ambitious histories of all humanity not uh, a national history or you know a local like, so you obviously would have had the famous Edward Gibbon book on Rome and David Hume wrote a, wrote a book in the 18th century on the history of England these were bestsellers and you've got you know the the philosopher in France during that time writing books on French history he wrote he tried to write um <laughs> like a, a, the history of humanity and uh the book is a hatchet job on the Catholic Church. Actually, he got a uh, he got officially sanctioned, um, which is class. But so, like again, he's like a public intellectual, very very well known, and so he's hanging out with people. Like people are seeking him out, and he was good buddies with Charlie Chaplin, who went to see him repeatedly over the years. And Chaplin had a had a great argument with him over Stalin. He was like, "Are you sure Stalin isn't building socialism in one country and that it's going to be a paradise?" And Wells like, "I'm telling you, he's a son of a bitch." <laughs> Chaplin was like, ah, oh, come on, yeah, sure. I, I really believe. Because Chaplin, poor Chaplin kind of got, he got, I didn't really realize this, but, you know, Chaplin grew up in England and then he left and made it in the States. I was just really disturbed by the opening scene in the Ch the Chaplin biopic where he's a kid working in the Victorian music halls. Mm. It just, it's so horrible, grotty and grimy. <laughs> yeah, he, the, the height of Edwardian vaudeville is kind yeah. of the, it's funny you don't associate him with that because he's such a an icon of American, movies and yet an icon of early Hollywood, yeah. Mm. But Chaplin ended up like spending the last two decades, I think, or three decades of his life in England, and he never went back to the states because essentially he got red scared. Like, yeah, he they, was on the blacklist, wasn't he? He was on the blacklist, and he felt totally betrayed. So it's funny, like he he wanted to escape Britain because he lived in a grimy working class, miserable hell. He went to the sunshine and beauty of California initially as a vaudeville performer, then became, uh, you know, the most legendary, not just actor performer, but also director. It's like he directed all those movies and wrote them and everything and very high concept stuff. You know, it's not just like theater, like is, is. Yeah. The, the idle class, which is an incredible commentary on like times. the leisure of the rich and um, yeah, modern times, which is, I mean, that's an incredible indictment of, you know, the working class life, et cetera. But he felt like America was his sanctuary and then they turned on him and he ended up back in Britain and Wells was there telling him, turns out it sucks in Russia too. And, you know, <laughs> I guess they, yeah, that they, they desperately wanted it to be so good because. <laughs> yeah. And again, like Wells was selling the utopian dream and Chaplin was buying into it. Was them. Um... Were they doing the Potemkin Village stuff at the time Wells went over? Was that two, 1922? Was that too early? Like, were they uh, not? Like, I, I guess I'm asking, like, when he went there, was he seeing the real problems they had or was he taken to some nice cleaned up town? No, they, I think when, when he went in 22, they had, they barely had a pot to piss in kind of stuff. Like, he probably would have seen, you know, like by 34, Stalin had probably put some order on things. But by 22, like, he was getting a promissory note from Lenin saying, I'm the man to clean this up. But I think it was a hellscape, you know. That's and tough. Lenin died very recently after that, or very soon after that, too. Wells, 1946? Well, Wells died in 46, but Lenin died in, like, 23, I think. Right. And um, I want to talk about, there's a video on YouTube of H.G. Wells talking to Orson Wells. I think it <laughs> must be about 1940, 
or thereabouts. And I think it's on a radio show. And uh, again, a, a classic meeting of two important heads uh, who have almost the same name and were both, of course, instrumental in the history of the War of the Worlds. And they actually mentioned the recent scare. So in 1938, the, the Mercury Theatre broadcast of War of the Worlds, according to legend, scares millions of war jittery Americans with their, with their sort of on the air live performance. And most places now, most historians seem to think that was greatly exaggerated by newspapers, partly as a kind of a way of discrediting radio, which they saw as, as a new competitor. Just, wow. you know, that's a take on it. But I think they were trying to portray radio as like grossly irresponsible. You know, it, it doesn't have the story history that newspapers do, like as if newspapers never made up bullshit. You know, like look at every Victorian newspaper ever, fucking <laughs> airships attacking you, little green men, the whole lot. Like, but the, it's it's an incredible interview. At Wells's voice, he's got he sounds exactly like you'd imagine he would. He's got this like high pitched nasal. Oh, well, yes, I'm an old fashioned Victorian British fellow, and of course everybody knows what uh, Orson Wells's voice sounds like. But they're just both consummate gentlemen in you know, the old world and the new world in their different ways meeting. And it's a, it's a lovely chat. He, uh, he thanks Orson Welles for raising the profile of the book and giving him some extra sales. And he says, uh, it's one of my more obscure titles. It doesn't really? sell like some of my, yeah, like okay. it doesn't sell like some of my others. That's Again, because this, the, the thing is like he was, the, his bestsellers were his nonfiction books. I wonder if the profile of that book, you know, because to us now, as you know, as genre fans or whatever, it's a huge property, but and, and we see it as this primordial alien invasion story, um, you know, or at least knocking the genre into shape, you know. But fiction has fiction often has legs in a way that nonfiction doesn't, and especially when you're like saying, "What will the next five years be like?" You know, like there's a there's an inherent lifespan on on books like that, and so when you look back on on his books of that sort now it's it's as a curio rather yeah. than anything else whereas World the world is timeless if the the idea of like wells and Verne as these classic pillars if that was conceived you know maybe in the 20s and 30s with you know campbell and these these science fiction pulp writers who would have grown up reading that stuff and were influenced by it and then you know the genre was growing and it went from one one period of its of its development to another and, and that would have been the, they would have been the heroes that those guys grew up reading I wonder if that idea of them as canonical forefathers came about at that time. What do you think the best Wells film adaptation is? Um, I actually haven't seen the 1936 Shape of Things to Come, which is obviously one of his most blatantly prognosticating <laughs> of stories. I, have, I do have a soft spot for the 1953 George Powell War of the Worlds. Um, it is hokey, but... It, it gets some, actually, do you know what? I'm gonna, the, I think the best adaptation full stop is obviously the ridiculous 1970s disco progressive rock <laughs> War of the Worlds by Jeff Wayne. Jeff Wayne's, yeah, that's a good call. I'm, uh, so I don't hate the Spielberg War of the Worlds. I have a soft spot no, for it. No, it's okay. Um, I hate the but kid. I, the yeah, boy. no, the fact that the kid goes off to fight as out of some sort of patriotic duty. So again, Wells would hate that. Um, and also the fact that he survives and comes back and meets them at the end is unforgivable. Like that's, that's where Spielberg can't resist putting like six more, uh, cubes of sugar into the cup of tea, even though, you know, doesn't need it. Um, but I, I will always go to bat for the, um, 
the 90s Dr. island of dr moreau with like peak i don't dr. give a shit Morris. um marlon brando like that's just like that's a sensational performance of marlon brando of i am i'm here you're going to get what you're going to get and i simultaneously don't give a shit about anything and also i am acting and acting is me and i'm not going to act it's incredible. I think we have to mention briefly some of the mad stuff that happened behind the scenes in that. And there's a great documentary about the making of it. I can't remember what it's called. Yeah, that's a that's a nuts story as well. Like, and you realize that Marlon Brando was impossible to deal with. Also, that director, I know, I know seems to be actually seems to be the case that he's not a great guy in real life. So, no, Richard, uh, Richard Stanley would that be his yeah, name? Yeah, he yeah. he recently did the. The color out of space which is actually very good interestingly that studio are saying look some stuff has come up about this guy we don't support him but a lot of other great people put a lot of work into this film you should still check it out somehow they found a way so that like he doesn't get any money out of it but they do I oh. don't know. but like that's one way of coming at this issue of trying to support you know art even if somebody involved isn't great but um, well, personally i'm always going to go to bat for Nick Cage in crazy <laughs> performances and he's nuts in that as he always is and that's a that's a great movie yeah yeah I enjoyed that very much so it would be a shame for people not to see it you know like like I, I think that's a great thing to keep in mind like loads of other great people worked hard on that and it's a it's a it's a team effort like but the story of what happened to him making the island of Dr. Moreau is just crazy where he he was forced to leave the set when a new director was brought in. The studio had had enough of him. He disappeared into the wilds of the jungles of North Australia where it was being filmed. He snuck back onto the set, put on a mask, the mask of one of the beast people and actually appears in the film as an extra and like never took his mask off and he was there for weeks. And people on the set were saying, like, who is this guy who's really in character? And he, even at lunchtime, he doesn't take off his mask. And he, there's an, a crazy interview with him where he says, like, you know, in a way, I, I went through the journey of going from, like, being Dr. Moreau, being the, the god of the island, being the director. And I truly became one of the beast people. <laughs> but, like, he makes it sound like between trying to satisfy the demands of the studio, dealing with a Brando who was, like, yeah. had to be on the project like he had brando foisted on, upon, upon wouldn't him talk to anybody wouldn't come out of his trailer wouldn't talk to brando yeah i think val kilmer had just done batman and he was like kind of in a coked coke fueled <laughs> ego egotistical frenzy so he thought he was like the hot shit and they were isolated you know they were kind of metaphorically on an island where the heat was getting to them and the intensity and all that and the guy just like lost it like he broke and he was very, he had done one, I think one short film uh, or maybe one, maybe it was a full end film, but it was like a low end, you know, cheap student type film that was very well regarded. And this was his big break and he was very young and inexperienced. Yeah. Uh, Brando man. <laughs> At a whole other level. Unbelievable. He's another like legend in that, like, if you think about the stuff he did to raise awareness for like indigenous rights and stuff, like he gave his, he won the Oscar for the, um, the godfather and he gave it to uh an indigenous community that were fighting for land rights like you know for all his faults like can you think of anybody who would do that like he just okay. didn't give it he was at a whole other level and then he just like <laughs> <laughs> refused to learn his lines and yeah. had to have them like written on on boards around the set and he designed his own costume for the island of dr moreau because he's basically wearing a white muumuu and then like this kind of stove hat a white stove hat and he's covered his face is covered in this really white thick 
face cream at all times. Yeah, like sun cream. And then he's got the the um, little mini person me. with him. Yeah, essentially mini me. And apparently, like he insisted on that. Is that right? Or is that is that in the book? I can't remember. I read the book so long ago. Oh uh, no, I don't. I don't. I mean, there are a lot of little servant creatures in the book. I don't know that there's a specific one that dresses like him and follows him around. I don't think so. Uh, probably a, a last tidbit on Wells is that he had diabetes and he founded the UK diabetes cha diabetes charity, which is oh. still in operation today. That's cool. So, um, what are his lasting? What's his lasting legacy? Is it just the sci-fi stuff? Is that, is he taken is, are his ideas taken seriously in any other way, or have they had other legacies? I think I think his legacy is very much as a science fiction writer i think he's like got god tier status yeah. in that and like there's very few gateways into becoming a sci-fi kind of fan as a young teen or kid other than you have to go through a few doors and wells is probably first among them even still and really his his non-fiction has aged pretty awfully um even the stuff that's not outright objectionable for moral reasons is just it's clunky it's bloated it's frequently again like arrogant and it's just it's kind of again it's got that patrician mentality um and yeah he he wasn't exactly he, he didn't write for posterity let's say it was all very um very like contemporary to a fault let's say so whereas i think the fiction has legs far beyond its time cool uh, yeah i think i'd agree and i absolutely would recommend reading any of those kind of classic 1890s sci-fi ones that you, that everybody's heard of. If you've heard of them or seen the films but not read them, they're all very enjoyable. Um, especially for me, War of the Worlds and First Men of the Moon probably probably my favorites. I would say as well, Invisible Man is pretty damn good, and the most recent movie of that mm. is unexpectedly good. Excellent. I must check it out. Yeah, worth a look. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you. And that is almost it for this episode, folks. I actually have a late-in-the-day treat mention for you uh, because during the editing process for this episode, I came across a really cool-looking project on Instagram, and it is a card game based on War of the Worlds, currently in development. It is called War of the Worlds One More Day. And this really looks like it's being made with a lot of love for the original novel. The attention to detail is tremendous. The illustrations look wonderful. Um, it includes all of the craft and the locations and the characters from the original novel as well. Really, really looks like it was done by like very serious fans of the book, which warms my Wellesian heart. So if you're a fan of uh, the original novel or any of the adaptations, or if you're just a fan of the geography of the county Surrey, I think you'll get a kick out of it. And a special thanks to Matthew, the creator of the game, who uh, I reached out to just to say hello. It is currently still in development at the playtesting stage at the moment. But if you're if that sounds like the kind of thing you'd be interested in, do check them out on Instagram. They are War of the Worlds underscore One More Day. Uh, you can take a look at the photographs and the pictures and the game in progress and see if it seems like the kind of thing you might be interested in. So until next time, make sure to check us out 
uh, online on Twitter. We are at Strange Ireland. On Instagram, we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. So until next time, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. Of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.